to the Tenuous Links podcast, home of the Golf Barons. Offering bloviated opinions on all things golf, discussing the game's biggest problems and some solutions to them as loosely as possible. Come add some swagger to your swing. Hello, Barons. Uh, now, it's not often we get to realise our dreams and head off on a golf trip to an iconic destination. Uh, it's even less common when that destination is St Andrews during the staging of the 150th Open Championship. Well, today's guest managed to do just that and to tell us all about the wonderful world of Uber junkets, uh, we'd like to welcome the Vice President of Global Domination of Tour Edge Golf, uh, Mr John Craig. John, welcome on board and welcome back to wherever you are. Executive Vice President Phil, thank you. You're shortening the title already and you know, that's a little unfair given the shit you've given me all these years about the length of my title. So but the anyway, lovely to be here. Uh, hello to all the listeners out there. But the global domination one was correct. Is that right? That's, that yeah, is oh, that's all good. That's spot <laughs> yeah, on. Right. Yeah, yeah. Just got to add an executive. Um, anyway, so people say, John, they say that they remember where they were when man landed on the moon or when Tiger chipped in on 16 or Augusta. Well, I remember where I was when I got a phone call from you under the auspices of you need to help me get this over the line with my darling wife, but really it was just a brag, when you rang me to tell, tell me about this trip that you had been invited on and who had invited you and what it entailed. So that's not the only thing we'll talk about today. We're going to talk about leave and we're going to talk about bifurcation, but I want to start on the Uber junket. John, this is your tale. Well, in true Baron style, this this is a, a tale... Only worthy of golf barons, that's for sure. Yes, I was I was absolutely thrilled to receive a phone call a couple of months back from uh, uh, an executive at NBC Universal, who we uh, buy our media through through Golf Channel and Golf TV here in the US. And uh, John Donnelly is his name, lovely bloke. Got to know him pretty well. And uh, John started off with saying, "Look, you know, John, do you do you have any interest in the British Open?" You know, a bit of a Dorothy Dix right out there out of the gate. And, uh, of course, JD, what's going on? He said, well, look, we're actually taking a group of people over to the, the British Open this year, and I, I was wondering whether you'd be interested in coming. And I said, John, well, you know, you know, tell me a bit about the trip, what's, what's going on. And he opened with the word helicopters. <laughs> and... That got my attention. So, look, cutting a long story short, but I was absolutely uh, uh, spoilt rotten to be flown first class from Chicago over to Heathrow and uh, up to Edinburgh. And uh, we stayed at a beautiful estate down on the East Lothian side of the – is it the 4th of Fife or the Fife of 4th? There's the a question Firth, for you. It's the Firth of 4th. The Firth of Forth. So we're on the southern side of the Firth of Forth, meaning it's about an hour and 20-minute drive back into Edinburgh and back up the north side and out to St Andrews. So NBC in their wisdom decided to say, well, that's probably not going to be, that's probably not going to be right. So why don't we hire four helicopters for three days? <laughs> and uh, uh, after our golf and whatever, we'll just chop a, to the hospitality suite on the 14th fairway at uh, St Andrews and chop her back home again in the afternoon. So arrived into uh, into Scotland where we were staying. We stayed at a really beautiful estate in East Lothian. They're right in the heart of basically in the estate 
Uh, it's the Archerfield Estate, so it's a beautiful historic mansion. Um, I wasn't in a mansion, boy. I'm a little bit lower down the totem pole Stables. than the mansion. But uh, a beautiful four-bedroom uh, cottage with a couple of other. So there were four golf, uh, a group of four of, of golf-related people, and the other 28 on the trip were various media buyers from NBC through from the Olympics to all their other major customers and major media buyers around the world. So had a great group. Um, uh, went with a, a chap by the name of Nick McAnally, who's the global VP of marketing with Callaway, who's a ripping guy. Got to know him well. And, um, yeah, golf each day in the morning. Early in the morning we played uh, North Berwick, uh, Dunbar, both the courses at Archerfield, and then came back at lunchtime and uh, yes, jumped in the jumped in the chopper, and it was a twelve-minute ride, and the chopper literally picked us up from out in front of our accommodation, uh, four people in each chopper, and yeah, twelve-minute ride landed just uh, in the school there next to St Andrews and Limo Drive, then straight up to the back of the hospitality suite and in, and four hours swanning around, you know, doing what you do. Um, but it was fantastic. I, I'd not been to St Andrews before, so it was uh, truly uh, fantastic to walk around and, and see the course and see stuff that you'd watched on television for the best part of 30 or 40 years for me and, uh, you know, some indelible memories and, uh, yeah, spoiled rotten. Yeah, and what so you- I can thoroughly, I thoroughly remember, if you ever get a chance to spend a few million bucks with Golf Channel, go for it because you just never know. You, you just might get the phone call. And what was it about St Andrews that, that struck you or, or what married up to what your perception was going to be of it and what surprised you about it? I think there were two really dramatic uh, visual images, obviously the 18th and the closeness of the town and and how it just, you know, provides this magnificent amphitheatre to the 18th hole and the first hole. And you just don't kind of realise how um, people talk about how wide the first fairway is and it is, but equally no one talks about how close uh, the houses and the hotels are on the right side of the 18th and they're effectively 15 feet off the edge of the green is out of bounds and, and that shot Cam Smith hit to, you know, take it at the left side of the green and, and fade it to that front edge, you know, literally 20, 25 feet right out of bounds. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. So you kind of don't quite get the scale of how intimidating that is off the tee and, you know, how enclosed everything is. So I think that was, that was pretty amazing. Um, and I think the other crazy, really crazy thing you, you just don't get from television is people talk about the road hole and the difficulty in the tee shot. And if you stand behind the tee shot, it, it kind of actually, and Phil, you would know only too well being the only person in this podcast who's actually <laughs> played St Andrews. Thank you. Um, the, the tee shot, while intimidating visually, you know, at the end of the day, it's still, you know, it's not that dramatic. But the difficulty of the second shot is really beyond imagination because the TV doesn't really show that when the pin is in the middle of the green, so it's, it kind of almost looks like it's tucked behind the bunker, but it's in the middle of the green. Like it's only something like 18 feet wide. So any shot approaching that pin that's six feet left is in the road hub bunker. And I watched Cameron Tringali take four 
to get out of that bunker and it was hilarious. Oh, sorry, this sounds terrible. But it was hilarious because each shot was aimed at a different point of the compass as he tried to find a way out. So he tried to actually hit it out onto the green first of all, no good. He went to go backwards, couldn't get that out, went to hit it north towards the 18th green, couldn't get it out and ended <laughs> up having to play back down the 17th fairway. Um, After which shot did his mood change the most, John? Oh, he was filthy from the time he walked into the bunker and obviously saw his line, saw, you know, how screwed he was. And I think these revetment wall bunkers and the flat floor of the bunkers create uh, an amazing additional level of interest for, you know, bunkers that we're so used to now where the ball rolls back down to the middle and you've always got a shot, whereas... You know, 50% of the time or a significant proportion out of the time when you hit it in these bunkers, like you have no shot at all. You have no stance. Like you have players thinking about having to turn their sandwich upside down to hit it out left-handed because they're up against the revetment. And that, that was a really cool thing. But And then, you know, coming back to the, the road hole green, the, the green slopes off to the right to the path and into the road. So it's really... You know, anything 10 feet right of the pin also, if it's bleeding at all, is going to end up on the road. And you just can't uh, – how in the olden days guys went into that green with a three or four iron is uh, a testament to the shot making of the pass and guys would hit sort of rope draws. Mind you, just as difficult because they're actually aiming it at the road and hoping the hell it draws. Um, you know, I watched on – Saturday, three groups come through. Didn't see a player get close to the green. In fact, they were all pretty much uh, aiming 25 yards long and left, blowing it over the road hole bunker and back so they could then chip it back up the, the heart of the green. And it was a relatively easy up and down where, you know, potentially half of them were, were getting it up and down. And I think I read the stats on the Saturday, 8% of the field hit the green in regulation. Now, that, that, that is an astonishing statistic. So, yeah, very, very cool. So that, that were the key really, you know, dramatic things that you don't see on TV doesn't show you. And were you able to venture out the back? Did you see all the holes? Did you Were you able to take your Chablis out to the, uh, the far reaches of the course, John, or did you have a butler to do that for you? <laughs> no, I, I left this class of Chardonnay with the butler. and um, But, yeah, I did sneak out. Uh, one day I did the front nine, so I basically did a lap uh, from where we were on 14 back uh, to the beach and then back down. Spent a bit of time on the range watching some guys hit the ball, some balls uh, back through 18 and back through that way. And then another day I did the reverse and, and went out the back to the loop. And so I made sure I, I covered all 18 at various stages and and look the crowds were actually you know late in the afternoon it got really really crowded but our schedule meant that once the players came through 14 from the suite where we were we went and jumped back in the chopper and went back to the hotel and watched the last three or four holes uh at the hotel Um, so it meant that we were out there relatively early and and crowds were you could walk around really really comfortably and watch virtually any group you know, with no more than, you know, you were never more than one or two deep and yeah, it's just an incredible property. And the good thing about being a 12-minute drive from the course, John, or flight for some, um, is that you can watch them hit off and by the time they've sorted out their second shots, you've arrived in your hotel 
uh, you're able to watch it live on television the way the speed of play some of them had. Yeah, we missed one hole, so it was uh, it was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, and truly, have you lined uh, up an invitation from NBC to go back and play it, John? I wrote the most groveling, pathetic <laughs> thank you letter. Um, it, it was almost humiliating when I read it back. But no, no, sent them a lovely thank you letter. I think this might be my one and done, yeah. as they say in the classics, as there are many, many people far more important than me. And I'm kind of working on the theory that I, I've had my five minutes of, of fame and it's back to being the pleb that I actually am. Uh, and did St Andrews lose any of its charm in your mind watching players drive greens or even contemplate driving greens? I mean, the fact that they were all hitting at front edge of 18, um, you know, let alone some of the holes in the front nine or even, you know, around nine and, and 12. Did it lose any of its charm? <laughs> Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Uh, you know, how do you define charm? I mean, it didn't lose any of its challenge. If you look at scoring, if you look at Rory's Sunday, um, you know, I think there were four of the par fours were drivable on Sunday and, and you couldn't get better weather conditions either. Sunday was really, really benign. Um, so, you know, what's a, your definition of charm? Certainly, I don't think it... Uh, it changes the difficulty of the course, which is testament to then the underlying architecture that, you know, it doesn't become dramatically easier, you know, when you've got a 60-yard pitch versus a six or seven iron. I think charm, I mean, being slightly old school, I heard Mike Clayton, you know, say, well, well, look, it's still the same test, except we're no longer testing the middle of the bag. So it's a test of driving and tee play and, and positional play and it's a test of your short game and putting and it's a test of your pitching, which is kind of three quarters of your bag. But, you know, as far as testing your five, six, seven, eight iron, uh, although it was interesting, I think Cam Smith hit R into 15, hit iron, six off the tee and then six iron. So, you know, to some degree that dispels that, you know, playing the longer game actually he came out in front. But... You know, maybe it, maybe it, uh, you know, some of the charm was missing because we didn't see all of the bag tested. But as far as a contest and challenge and television and all the rest of it, I, I think you, you know, it's you could mount a very strong argument to say it was equally compelling viewing whether they were trying to find a wedge on a green or a seven iron. Yeah, and when you were mixing it with the plebs in the um, the general crowd, John, was there any sentiment of? oh, this is a joke, look how far they're hitting it? Or was it just genuine excitement of, look how far they're hitting it? Yeah, I think I think people that go and watch live golf, maybe in Scotland, certainly in the US, I think they're a little bit over that. You know, like they, it, it was hilarious. It was more like, come on, Tommy, yeah. come on, Tommy. Boy, the English and the Scots, they, they love their own kind and, it was hilarious watching Fleetwood for a couple of holes with just the absolute red bags. Just come on, Tommy. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, I think there's a little bit of an awe, but when you see it live, it it kind of looks like it's going a long way. But you know, it's just another good drive. It probably looks further on TV, to be honest, because you, you get a more direct consequence of where the ball is finishing. Yeah. Uh, more so than on TV. Well, you know, it's just a blast off the TV and it's it's down there somewhere. Um, and then moving on to the golf that you did play, um, you, you mentioned that you went to North 
Beric, John, and you sent me a video of you or one of your playing partners arriving at North Berwick, and that was where I first glimpsed the helicopters. Um, what was that like as an experience? Because that is that is as iconic as any other golf course. Yeah, I think it dates back to um, 1832 was the first official, but they've been playing golf there, I believe, since the 1700s. Um, North Berwick was an amazing Amazing experience in terms of being exposed to really what, you know, Scottish golf, you'll love this film, Scottish golf is as much a vibe as it is a, a game. It's, to quote from the Castle Phil, it's Marbo. It's just yeah. got, um, was it Dennis Denudo? Um <laughs> It was just, you know, it's a this like the first tee and the first hole is right in the heart of this Picture perfect little town on the beach. There are people everywhere. You know, you've heard about walking the dogs. Well, literally, they are everywhere just walking their dogs. And it's like the golfers are, you know, we're just a sideshow to, you know, the day to day activity. And so that creates this incredible atmosphere within a history of design. North Berwick's famous. I think it's the 15th hole was the very original Redan hole. Um, for those that are familiar with the template holes, um, it has a couple of other absolutely classic, you know, I heard, again, to quote Mike Clayton, talk about it as being some people consider it maybe a little quirky, but it's quirky in the nicest, um, approachable, interesting way. I mean, it's just, it's gorgeous. And for those not familiar, I think it's hole number 14 where there's basically a three-foot-high, 200-year-old brick fence running right along the edge of the green down the centre of the fairway that's just, it's right in the middle of the hole and you just navigate it. Um, and if no, I looked at tremendous Baron's experience. Life, yeah, Baron's Life Iconic Greens, you'll be able to actually uh, have a look at that if you go to the, uh, check out Baron's Life Greens issue. But but North Berwick, um, because it is, golf is the DNA and there's this, there's this, um, symbiotic nature, I suppose, of, of golf and community, both at St Andrews and in North Berwick, where it's just the town revolves around the golf course and the golf course revolves around the town and they just they have that seamless link. Yet as golf developed globally, we put big F-off gates at the front uh, and surrounded it and wrapped them in fences um, with lots of go away. Is there something to be learnt from that as golf develops, John, just to get a little bit more? Yeah, look, I mean, I've heard people talk about this in Scottish golf and talk about, you know, the vibe and and to be honest, I thought people talking bullshit, to be honest. How can it be that different from golf as we know it? But it is just so dramatically different in terms of uh, how serious they take it on the one hand and how relaxed it actually is on the other and how these two things merge in such a pleasant Way. I mean, we walked North Berwick with caddies and got around in four hours. And that's on a busy day in open week when the course was packed. It was pretty busy. But, like, you would never consider slow play. You would just be thrown off the course. Like, it's just not acceptable. And, you know, maybe it's a good example then of, you know, if you actually set standards right out of the gate, i.e. 200 years ago, yeah. uh, it's amazing how easy it is that that becomes culturally then the accepted norm and behaviour. So it is, it's it's completely different from golf as we know it. You know, Australia is plays a far more relaxed 
style of golf, say, than what they play in the US. Here it's incredible to think how far golf has come and departed from those uh, original Scottish ideals or norms, however you want to call it, because uh, the game is a, a distant a distant sketch of, of what it is over there to, to what it is here if you look at the you know the classic country clubs and just how upmarket and privileged golf is here in the US yeah. in the main part. And do you get any good stories out of the caddies, John? I know that you like to engage with the caddies and pick their brains when you can. Oh, I had a ripping, a ripping caddy who kept uh, kept telling me that uh, John, you you've got to stay out of the wee wispy. <laughs> um, Ewan was his name, and uh, by hole seven, he was putting shit on me on a regular basis. And uh, uh, yeah, no, lovely guy, very knowledgeable, fantastic, and you know the caddies really add to the whole experience and. Look, they had four scratch players, or pretty close to scratch players in their group. So it was a dream group from yeah. the caddies. So they were having a, a fantastic uh, time. But, oh, yeah, no, no no sacred cows, I tell you. Well, I can tell you that when I was lucky enough to play St Andrews, John, that Louis didn't quite have the uh, the same experience with me when I stood on the first tee. Uh, and he said, have you already hit? Were you a bit nervous? And as I traipsed off towards the left fence, John, uh to find my ball a metre and a half inside it. <laughs> that's that's a little crooked off the first at North Berwick. You might need to come down. The, the synergy in it, though, John, is that off the 18th tee, I almost hit it to the same spot after it ricocheted <laughs> off the roof of the houses that are relatively close to the <laughs> to the road. Well, I'd say by the time you got to 18, you knew exactly where to go. Um, so, yes, I, I, I was in a divot, though, John. I think that rule should be changed. I was in my own divot near the fence after the ball rolled under the Peugeot. I mean, that 18th at North Berwick, again, to talk about cultural norms, but uh, so picture a 270-metre par four and literally on the right-hand edge of the green and fairway is a car park with with direct in parking the whole length. So you cut it 20 yards off the tee and you're just right on the roof of the Persia. And, but... Car park's full. No one cares. They just park there, and that's just an accepted part of the local town. And but you know, if you tried to do, I mean, just the insurance and the issues in Australia or the US. So it just, but that's just it's the way it's been. So that's we will keep parking there. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. So so moving on to St Andrews and the whole idea of the course being overpowered. Do you think St Andrews will ultimately be the catalyst for for accelerate the bifurcation discussion or, or for significant change? Do you think it – was there any discussion over there around that from the hobnobbing that you were doing? Mm, no, I've got some other good good, good uh, insights from the hobnobbing that we'll get to uh, maybe shortly, but, uh, but now to transgress from one hobnobbing to another. So after I returned from Scotland uh, on the Monday after the Open – I actually happened to have a couple of key customers from the great land down under arriving in Chicago, uh, to which we uh, immediately drove up and played Whistling Straits and oh, Aaron Hills on the Wednesday and the Thursday. Bad luck. And sitting down at dinner at Aaron Hills on Wednesday night was a big group of USGA uh, people, including the man that will ultimately make this decision, Mr. Mike Wan. Right. Uh, who was also 
sitting right next to me at breakfast the next morning and I had all ears pricked listening to his conversation. So to which I didn't gain any direct information. However, we've had a little bit of consultation with the USGA and it really uh, appears like in the next 12 months we're going to see some concrete action uh, in terms of genuine changes of the rules to help uh, rein in and, and, you know, try and keep some relevance to some of the key architecture of the great courses around the world, which are, you know, St Andrews is, I say it's still played with great integrity and it was just as difficult, but, you know, there's many, you know, St Andrews is a one-off and, you know, there's 30, 40, 50 other great legacy courses that can't defend themselves like St Andrews can uh, that I think the USGA is recognising and, I don't have the direct insight as to what the solution is going to be, but I am told that there's going to be some ball changes and there's going to be some driver changes, and that's most likely in the form of bifurcation of rules. Um, So I am going to gloss over the fact that you just dropped in the fact you came from playing North Berwick and Archerfield and going to St Andrews to then playing Whistling Straits and Erin Hills. So let's... It was a good seven days on on two (laughs) continents. Sadly, you can never... And and didn't put put my hand in my pocket once. No, which is not unusual for you. But I think from the bifurcation point of view, from a tour edge point of view, do you have and have you started to give some thought as to what adjustments you might need to make or do you just need to wait until the guidelines are set and uh, and then tweak away? We've speculated. Um, we haven't taken any concrete action, but I think uh, I may have told listeners of the pod once before. I mean, most of us in the hardware business, let's talk clubs, are very close down the path of bifurcation already. I mean, we're making, for us, we make two different models of premium drivers. Some of our competitors make three, some even make four with drivers set up to manage different speeds, spins, player type. So, I mean, bifurcation is kind of a fancy word for product segmentation Uh, to some degree without any rules wrapped around it. But if you actually wrap some rules around it, it's not really changing anything that dramatically from an engineering standpoint. So let's say if we have to take, for us in the case of our exotics drivers, our C-series product, you know, if we have to bring the CC of that down, say, from 460 down to 380, well, that's a relatively simple engineering exercise. And all of the core associated impacts from that, well, we're already familiar with, we understand that would do. I mean, that would be a pretty quick and simple exercise, notwithstanding that the USGA is going to give us at least you probably two, three, four years to do yes. this. Yeah. I mean... If they really wanted to, they could say, listen, guys, uh, January 24, you've got to be ready for this. And most of the companies would be able to do that. Now that's in the club area. And I think from an equipment uh, manufacturing standpoint, I mean, we say bring it on. I mean, I think it's going to create more interest, better consideration of equipment. I think that a lot of people are playing with equipment that they shouldn't be playing with because they can, whereas this will more clearly stratify 
and I think make it a little bit easier for people to acknowledge, well, actually, I, I'm not that good a player. I actually would be better in a slightly game improvement iron than, you know, buying the muscle back forge blades, which I can't hit. Um, so I think it will help stratify, structure uh, the hardware market. I think it's a more complex issue for the ball companies. Yeah. Uh, and we're not in the ball business, so we have no skin in this game. So the opinion I'm giving you is nothing more than a, my opinion. But I kind of figure that the bigger companies, I don't understand their fear because the bigger companies and, and in the case of let's talk about the the, the, the company with the, the giant share of the premium ball market, I mean, they will out-engineer everybody in moving to whatever this new point is so much quicker than anybody else because they have more intellectual property, they have more resources, they have more profitability, they have all of the underlying things that they should, it will be much harder for the smaller companies. And so, for instance, the direct-to-consumer ball companies, they're kind of screwed because, you know, they've basically been leaning off aged intellectual property. Now, if that intellect, if, if that line in the sand moves, those companies don't have the ability to pivot because they just don't have the resources to do it. Whereas, you know, be it Tyler, be it Taylor, be it TaylorMade, you know, they've probably already got the product half developed now. They know exactly the pros and cons and you know they're going to get to market way quicker with a better product than less resource companies so i think the bigger companies will again benefit from more interest more stimulus in the market consumers who want to play both balls you know play with their mate let's play with the two a ball that spins more and goes a little bit further you know it's just more choice more challenge more interest uh, i see it only as a positive but you know again that, that's my view from the outside looking in when it comes to the golf ball market. I mean, and Americans are a little, you know, they, they, they can be a little one-sided. I mean, we in Australia lived through this when we moved from the small ball to yep. the big ball. And for four years, it was kind of cool fun to have the choice of, of two. You know, if it was blowing 30 miles an hour, you'd pull the old small ball out and learn yeah. how to chip yeah. with that again. Yeah. Um, but the sky didn't fall in. Uh, eventually, people transitioned. Uh, and who's to say it wouldn't be interesting today if you still couldn't buy a small ball and play with it if you wanted to? Because, and I think that's, you know, yeah, it's one of the challenges. It had its pros and cons. I mean, it, it, it sure it went better with the, the, the T ball and the, the longer irons, but it was shit way harder to chip with and way harder to putt with. So, you know, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, Philip. And that's the the question, and I know that's Mike Wine's challenge, being the big dog about town, is to keep it exciting for people who aren't elite, and make it make it relevant. My courses, they're relevant for players that are. Um, so maybe I mean, that's- I'm hoping like hell that then they they loosen restrictions for the average player, like Japan, where to help with the CT limit. I mean. I'll turn 60 next year and uh, I would dearly love to hit it 20 yards further and, um, you know, to be able to time to time play back tees. It's, you know, harder and harder. I mean, it's 7,000 yards now. I'm, I'm, that's as far as I can go back. Um, 
so you've got a place like Erin Hills or Whistling, which plays 7,800 off the back. And it's, you know, I'm a blue tea guy nowadays. Um, you know, for the people who need it, seniors, ladies, anything we can do to make it easier. But, you know, we've, with one set of rules, we're hamstrung for the people who need the most help. Yeah. And we're arguably giving too much help to the people who leave, who need it most or least, I should say. So hopefully a new structure can provide a lease of life for everybody. Um, yes, which I think is an interesting lead-in from bifurcation. Then we talk about a new structure providing a, a new lease of life to everybody, John. Live golf. Is it is this choosing sides rhetoric of saying, oh, you've got to choose sides. It's either PJ Tour or Live. You don't get a choice. I mean, forgetting the DP, DP World Tour, which I think is – now almost forgotten. Um, is that a US-driven sentiment? The what tour? What tour was that? The the other one. Yeah. The one where all those I've good forgotten. players used to come from in the Ryder Cup, as Colin Montgomery said, when it used to be us versus them, and now it's the as someone pointed out, it might have been Friday. You know, it's the Florida Championship, the Ryder Cup. But um, look, in 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 time when this all plays out, the one question I want to know is that how could Keith Pelly think it was a good idea? to strengthen a strategic partnership and formalise his 10 best players every year, leaving his tour and going to another tour and thinking that that was good for his long-term business. I mean, that I just don't understand uh, how the European tour could think that's a good idea that let's formalise us being a feeder tour to the PGA tour and that's our long-term position. Yeah, leave it. I mean, it's it's... Uh, a couple of key things. So over here, no one thought they would get as far as they've got as quickly as they've got. So they've actually scared the crap out of everybody here. And uh, my observation and the feedback that I get is that they've caught everybody by surprise with just how much ground they've made. Um, so that's that's kind of issue one. Issue two is... For most North Americans, well, there's the only professional golf is the PGA. Do they play professional golf anywhere else around the world? Like they just have no knowledge, interest. There's just no stakeholder foot in the game for world golf. Yeah. Like to, to the key people that run professional golf in the USA, they honestly – like there's just zero care factor. And maybe that's right, that that's, you know, as, as Andy Gardner in his wonderful pod that he did uh, with the guys from, I think it was Friday, oh, you know, well outlined that the underlying structure of the PGA Tour has created a product of mediocrity. I mean, you don't need an MBA to tell you that, you know, the last thing you want to do with your product is to, Let's weaken our product, make more out of it, lower the price of it versus creating something more condensed that's considered of higher value and make less of it but charge more for it. Um, and, and that's a very condensed kind of view, but that's the PGA Tour playing 46 weeks a year is kind of for 10 or 12 million a week has created, you know, a, a product, a mediocre product, which made it, which has made it absolutely ripe for disruption i mean if you look at all the key ingredients for disruption you've got a a poorly structured 
uh, core stakeholders being the players, not overly enamoured with it, and, and there's been a long-standing us and them. If you talk to the key commercial partners of the PGA Tour, they freaking hate the tour. The tour are the hardest organisation to work with. We can't use imagery. I mean, even as a major partner for us with Champions Tour. So we're the principal sponsor of the broadcaster. We have naming rights to the broadcast here in the US. Um, I can't use in social media any footage when, in fact, I'm actually promoting their product. Yes. Yeah. I mean, isn't this one plus one equals three? But no, can't use any of that. So they've proven to be a very difficult commercial partner for their key stakeholders. So it's left them, you know, it's left them really this us and them. And, and if I travel and talk to people around the world, I mean, the, the difference in attitudes to live outside of North America are significantly stronger and with a more balanced view to say, well, look, you know, it's about time someone took a global view of what professional golf could look like and you know professional golf shouldn't look like 46 weeks a year in the u.s because you know one thing that is uh you cannot argue with the pga tour have personally through deliberate policy and strategy eliminated all of the uh the mini tours around the world yeah. which for five or six weeks in a year in australia why shouldn't that be viable and an event in south and etc 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 but I think the greatest thing that's not being spoken about is is management decision-making for, well, what's professional golf going to look like? Not in the next one year or two years, but, you know, long-term, where's the money in golf and the growth in money in golf? And, yes, the U.S. will always be strong, but I, I think it's been a masterstroke of these guys to take on the Asian tour and... If, if they can build that foundation, it's not inconceivable that over, you know, if we take a 20-year view, that, you know, Liv might genuinely grow to be a stronger competitor. And if I'm Liv right now, I mean, I have no interest whatsoever in sitting down with the PGA Tour to try and find a compromise. I was privy to a conversation with somebody who was in the room at a meeting uh, at the Open with all of the key stakeholders, so Monaghan, Pelly, uh, Martin Sleeps, um, Martin Slumbers from the yes, RNA, who, who, <laughs> who uh, Andy Johnson from <laughs> Shotgun Start loves calling him Andy Sleeps. Uh, so there was a, a major meeting with all of the key stakeholders, including NBC and the general feeling out of that meeting, I'm told, was that there needs to be a compromise much sooner than later uh, with this and it'll probably require Norman to go and it'll probably require for Monaghan to go. But I'm kind of thinking that if I'm live right now, I'm not sure what I've got to gain by going to the table. I mean, I'm going to let the PGA Tour sweat for a few years and I'm, I'm going to keep picking these guys off. And this is the fascinating thing, is that there's two arguments that have become clouded and the PJ Tour have allowed them, in fact, manipulated them to be clouded into one. And one is that it's a competitive tour and we don't like competitors. Now, the the source of the funding is of great concern, but is, and forgetting the number of countries or places that do business in Saudi Arabia, there is an LPGA series 
that he's sponsored by the same fund, that he's not copying the same heat. And so therefore, all you can say is this is a cult of personality. This is an anti-Norman thing because the LPGA are being left largely alone. And so all these people who've said we can't touch it because of the money, hey, check out Nelly Corder. Um, there, there's this both, uh, there's this hypocrisy um, that is concerning, forgetting the business side of it. But I agree with you from Liv's point of view. Hang on, we, it's mocked for growing the game. Oh, how are you going to grow the game? And this is what annoys me about Eamon Lynch and Brandel Shabley and all these other guys. Oh, as if they're going to grow the game. Asia is a growing market. It's the fastest market growing in golf. To your point, Korea and Japan are the second and third biggest golf markets outside of North America. Um, how is it not growing the game? If an event is played in Bangkok with this whole new format that is going to get 15-year-olds turning up, I just don't understand how it's not growing the game. And I saw, and there's a number of geniuses on Twitter, but there was one genius particularly who has a significant number of followers who said, I just secured myself 40 of it might have been Patrick Reed's free tickets to the live event in Bedminster. Hey, everyone should do this and just soak up all the free tickets. How are they possibly growing the game? And it's like, imagine one family where a 14-year-old says, Dad, I'm really interested in golf. Well, son, we can't afford to go. No, they've got free tickets. And now I can't go because some dickhead thought it was a good idea to steal them all whilst complaining that they're not growing the game. I think Liv, forgetting the, the – and I know it's easy to say forgetting the funding source – but for mine, it's a shake-up that it needed. And if there's an opportunity then to stimulate the Asian tour and Australia's role in the Asian tour and New Zealand's role in the Asian tour, how is that not going to be better for us uh, in the long run? How is it not growing the game? And to your point about Pelly, you've got to wonder what was driving his next job opportunity, I mean, his decision. Well, I mean... And the hypocrisy of Pelly. I mean, the European tour would not be in existence if it wasn't for the Saudis. I mean, the Saudis saved them four years ago. True. Like, they were done. Bankrupt, finished, tour gone. But the Saudis bailed them out with that swing and those events. Um, race to Dubai, you know, it's just nonsense. And really, the source of the money, sorry, at the risk of being very politically incorrect. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's all stop driving our cars. Like, let's like – it, is it not a double standard that, that all of a sudden golfers are now the moral litmus test of what should and shouldn't be done commercially when it comes to Saudi Arabia? I mean, that, isn't that just ridiculous, respectfully? Um, and I'm not saying, uh, you know, the, the China's – history, like where do you start and where do you stop? Where do you say, okay, uh, Company X sponsors uh, an event on the PGA Tour and they have a horrific history with treating workers or whatever. Like where does that slippery slope end? So, you know, ultimately product wins. And commercial reality wins. And if the Saudis stick to their guns and live or whoever and whatever it forms. And I talk to people about, because you also, one of the interesting angle here is that, so your average American knows absolutely nothing about Formula One. I mean, absolutely nothing. 
So they're totally naive to the ability to monetize an individual sport with a combined team sport and collect global brands with commercial partners that mutually benefit and and to monetize that all into uh, you know one of the top couple of watch sports yeah. in the world. So they have they they, they you, you try and explain this concept to them and they just look at you blankly. Um, you know I think the concurrent individual and team thing is the thing that ultimately will win out. And I don't think it's out of the question, and I know people will say I'm insane, but you know it's not uh, unrealistic for them to sell these teams for three or four hundred, five hundred million each in five years' time. It just is not uh, with particularly, and, and you forget here in the US market the tax incentives to to buying professional sports teams, the the cachet, the the amount of money. I mean, there are guys here that just would, you know. To throw away three hundred million, it's just so. There's some other commercial. It's not just all non-commercial. I, I actually don't think that the business model that they're espousing is completely out of the realms of turning a profit one day. And most people can't see that, but um, you know, other global sports, and you look at the EPL, and uh, it's incredible how, how valuable these franchises have become if you take the long view. I mean, if you went back 30 years in the UK and you told me that Liverpool was going to be worth, I don't know what it's valued, but it's in the billions. I mean, people have laughed at you. And I th- so yeah. you've got to look at a big picture and longer term because I think we're seeing fundamental structural change to say that the PGA Tour haven't done a good enough job to reward their stars. And if you look at global sports, it's all about rewarding those that bring the eyeballs, that move the needle. And, you know, outside of Tiger's ability to monetize himself, you'd say that the the top 20 players in the world are probably underpaid relative to contemporaries in similar sports in the US here. And ultimately that inequity was going to bite them on the ass unless they had lots of other things to offset that, like a, a nice cosy schedule, you know, lots of other things that kept the players happy. But, you know, the, the players, the underlying discontent has been a key that's allowed Lyft to happen. It's, it's not just the cash they're going for. There is a genuine feeling of sticking it up the PGA Tour with a lot of these guys. Which was Elkington's... No one, will, no one will tell you that, but that's a part of the equation to leave. Well, it's it's certainly rumoured, and I think Mickelson was the first one to call that out, and and he's probably still the only one to have called it out. But you know, Elkington referred to this this idea of eighty five percent of players would potentially go if they had the opportunity, and then you got Eddie Pepperell, who becomes the spokesman for the oh they're greedy, they're greedy. Eddie, have you been made an offer to go leave? Nah, no, I haven't made, made an offer. But those greedy bastards. And at what point in time is greed? Like how many other industries would someone say, look, I'm prepared to pay you 500000 a year in your role? Nah. Nah, I'm probably only worth four hundred, Um, Or just, nah, you're probably paying me a little bit too much. Like I don't understand that there's so many industries whereby success is measured by how much you are paid, yet professional golfers, not professional, not NFL players and not NBA players with their Supermax contracts, but golfers are asked to, to put a cap on their earnings. And then the last point to your team thing is, and there's two elements to this, one is with the World Cup being dead and the Canada Cup being dead, 
This idea of a Japanese team, the idea of a Korean team, if this is how it develops, the idea of an Australian team, once the two names pop in and another two pop out, um, starts to become stronger. And not only that, the move, the mocking of the fact that Travis Smith got moved to his third team in three events, Kevin Durant. So why is it okay for Kevin Durant to change teams every two years? But it happens in golf because it's so unique, John, and because, as you say, in America, they're not used to it because it just disrupts their whole thinking. Yeah, and I think that, uh, again, if I, I quote Andy Gardner and, and his principle of professional sport and the interest in it among you and I who watch it, uh, you know, it's all about engagement and the relationship between live broadcasting and then engagement through social media and how those two interact. Yeah. And you have to create a format that allows the maximum engagement when you're not playing four rounds of golf. And that's the thing that the PGA Tour have completely lost sight of and this whole live thing is going to create just constant content and, and that, rightly or wrongly, uh, and I, could, I, I can maintain arguments otherwise, but the, the commercial reality is it's about constant engagement and content and so evolving your format that enables you seven days a week of an event and importantly in the two weeks interspersing events that you have interesting concept content that your core fans i mean how often do we see i read the australian news and it's just staggering actually make notice of how many stories there are about daniel riccardi and ferrari or whoever his formula one team is it's it's seemingly in the news every week or every second week. Yeah. And how often do they race a year? 16 times or something? I don't know. So there's an interesting parallel of, um, you know, an interesting parallel by creating these other bylines is the long-term means by which to engage your audience. And it's all about eyeballs and audience and keeping them interested and keeping them motivated and challenged because if you do that, that's the product that's going to win over time and that's what's going to best then monetize the return for your superstars because your superstars are going to demand to be paid their commercial value. Or in a generation, kids won't play golf. These new great athletes we're talking about coming into golf, they'll go and play other sports because you know, I can make $20 million playing golf or if I'm just as good or talented, I'll make $100 million as quarterback for the... Uh, the Chiefs. Um, was I know that reaction? sounds a kind yeah. of nebulous argument, but it's yeah. true at the end of the day. Um, I might be any... brain damaged and <laughs> and can't talk yeah. at 45, but I'll have but, lived well up until then. But it'll be worth it. So so they then jag a, a Ferrety and the knockers come out and say, oh, what, you know, as if he's any good. Well, I... He's outstanding. And then if they get someone like Gary McCourt, because the one knock I've got on it is that Jerry Foltz can't let go of being American, whereas the other commentators for Liv seem to actually really get the mood and the time. Um, and I think Faraday will soften and connect those two better. Yeah, I, I just don't think he'll be as sycophantic as what the current commentary is. And, and you know, the one knock on Liv, having watched a fair bit of the content 
on YouTube. I think the broadcast is interesting. I think they show a lot more golf shots. I, mean, I think the commentary is just yeah the PR strategy for live. I'm I'm not you know the whole growing the game focus. I'm doing this for my family. I'm not sure if they'd be better to say, listen, I'm, I'm doing this because I'm going to make a stack more money. I like the schedule better. And listen, it really interests me. And I'm I'm kind of keen to be part of a revolution and change because I think the product that I was part of could be better. Now, they would have been my four talking points. And, and forget about the bullshit of family and all the rest of it. I mean, no one's buying it. It's been open to ridicule. So that's my only criticism that I think would have created a lot more interest and and probably, uh, you know, quieted the naysayers a little bit because, I mean, <laughs> Liv have given some free free punches to the opposition with some of, some of the nonsense that they've tried to portray. And, yeah, I think the commentary needs to improve a lot. But, yeah, like anything, they're two events old. Yes. <laughs> let's, let's, go, let's go three years down the track and 30 events. Or 40 events and you start carving off the rough edges and you know it could well be a unreal product in two years three years time and it's and, very harsh yeah. to judge it on its first or second outing and you know there's enough there to say i think there's something underneath here that could be pretty cool and a product that you're welcome to enjoy alongside the pga tour with everyone aspiring to the majors, and this is the point, the, the last point on live, I think that really frustrates me is that this idea of you have to choose. You know, they're forcing people to choose and therefore it's bad for golf because they're making people choose. Well, it's Keith Pelly's fault that they weren't already choosing because if he bothered to create a strong tour, they're already making their decisions and their choices. And, and you know, I'm very... I don't know Jay Monaghan. People tell me he's a lovely guy. Oh, the people I was away with at the Open all speak really, really highly of his work ethic and his commitment, etc. But you don't fight the Saudis with threats. You're never going to beat them, Lee. I mean, the last person you want to go to court with is someone with 100 times more money with you and an arguable case one way or the other because that's going to go on for years and invariably end up in tears because I don't think any lawyer in the world will tell you who is going to win this argument. But I know whose side in a, in a 50-50 battle in the court. I'm going with the guy with the 265 of the best QCs in the world on their team and, and propensity to say, yeah, let's drag this out for five or six years and see how their appetite is then. So... You know, I think the strategy had to be we have to make a better product. If that means we have to restructure, it's like the taxi industry competing against Uber by saying, hey, guys, we're, we're the taxi industry. Yeah, we've, we've got yellow. We're loyal. We've, we've taken you on good trips for years. <laughs> you know, we're cheap. You know, you've got to make, you've got to challenge the disruptor and who's to say whether it's going to be a better product, but it is, you've got to compete. And so it's kind of hilarious when you think about an organisation whose charter is to create competition, doing everything except acknowledging the competition and saying, well, we need to get better. If people are leaving us, obviously we're not doing something right. And creating, you know, I think Monaghan has done a really, really poor job of presenting publicly, you know, they've tried to blame the Saudis and the source of money 
I mean, eventually that's going to go. People are going to tire of that. Otherwise, we wouldn't be driving petrol cars. Seriously. Yeah. You know, it's like buy Australian product, buy Australian made. Well, I can remember doing research on that for years and, you know, that, that's all fantastic. And But only if all things are equal. If the Australian one's equally as good, if not a little bit better in the same price, I'll buy the Australian one. But if yeah. something's a little bit better or a little bit cheaper, I love my country, but... <laughs> So, you know, I think there's some strategic flaws and, you know, it's a wake-up call for the tour. But as a wise man once said, commercial reality will ultimately prevail and the better product will ultimately rise to the surface, whichever one that is. Yeah, whichever one that is. Now, to bring this back, John, to Tourich, now there's something, speaking of growing the game, not that we were, but we are now, Um, and to bring it back to Tourich, you have an ambassador that I love this idea of connecting non-golf athletes but embracing them as if they're marquee spokesmen. Um, How has your experiment, or not really experiment, because he's been involved with you for a long time, how has your Tourette's wrapping their arms around the great man who I'm still waiting on his signature from you, Bo Jackson, (laughs) John? How did that opportunity come about to use Bo? And and what's the reaction been and the influence on on the brand and the way it was perceived? So I think our campaign here in the the, the US, which um, you know most people listening to this pod uh, wouldn't be familiar with, but essentially we have our staff players having fun with our products and technology or whatever it is, and we have Bo this year come on and with a little cameo of reinforcing the knowledge or the bona fides of our staff players by creating some parity between these guys knowing and, and Bo knowing. And uh, it came about because Bo is actually, uh, he's an Alabama guy but also has a home in Chicago and spends six months of the year in the suburbs not far from where we are located. And um, out of the blue called us about five years ago and said, hey, you know, called my director of marketing and said, look, I'm Bo Jackson and I I live down the road and I've heard about your clubs. Can I come and try some? So Bo's been coming in once or twice a year for about five years and we've been helping out with, you know, we fit in for a new set of uh, equipment every year. And so it was kind of through, A, that initial personal relationship between Bo and some of our key people. And then when we sat down to write this year's uh, TV commercials, the idea came up to say, well, you know, we have this icon at our disposal. Um, it kind of fits. Um, we approached his manager to said, look, Bo's a mate, but, you know, we need to come. We, we came to a, yeah. a very fair and reasonable fee for his service and it's been really well accepted. Um, I mean, we really bat above our weight here. You know, we compete against the big guys who are probably spending 10 times us in media buy, and, you know, and we spend multi-million dollars in, in, in media here in the US. But our ads are often uh, very well recalled in research we do. Um, you know, it's popular among our major retailers who are also a really good sense of feedback. Uh, you know, we get talked about a lot. So it's, it's, been, it's been great. You know, we had a couple of... We had a couple of interesting letters, it would be fair to say, showing the diversity of America or the really? lack thereof. Um, but by and large, no, the support's been fantastic. And, yeah, I think it's been good for the brand and 
hey, at the end of the day, it's a bit of fun and, uh, you know, step one in advertising, people have got to notice your ads and remember them. So he's been very useful in that. Because I think there's this there's this impact that Michael Jordan, you know, I said when the President's Cup was last down here and Michael Jordan was, or the time before, it comes down a bit, um, was appointed as a vice captain and then chose not to travel. There was genuine excitement that Jordan was coming and I was able to actually connect basketball and golf. And I know um, anecdotally we bumped into a, a gentleman at, at Easton when we were doing some filming out at Easton. Um, and we'd done a segment about um, shooting arc and putting arc. Uh, and he said, I was so glad you connected those two, two things because my son's a mad keen basketballer and just taking up golf. And now he understands that I can use the influence of, of both. And then when you look at Steph Curry, you know, being given a lot more prominence and Larry Fitzgerald being a, given a lot more prominence, particularly in, in marketing in North America, there's this real potential, I think, for non-pure golf, passionate golfers as in non-professional golf passionate golfers who have this vehicle um, to shine and to help promote the game. So I love I love that and I love the fact that that Bo knows to Regin, I love the fact that Bo knows that he owes me a signature. <laughs> and look, you one little uh, aside. We had been accused in our advertising of being a little old and a little white, and principally because we sponsor the champions too. Yes. You mean the old white blokes? Invariably, fifty to sixty years old, and invariably they just happen to be principally white. So, including Bo, added some diversity um, that has also uh, ha- has not gone unnoticed, and uh, it's kind of pretty funny with a few people in the trade. That's for sure. That's fantastic. Well, hopefully you keep it up. Now, now to finish, John, there's a very important issue we have to deal with. And that's your Golf Barons Cup team. And there is no question that this concept is gaining momentum. It has been submitted to Performance 54 uh, from a a live concept. Um, And so far, you know, we've had a couple of diverse teams from Chris Voschel and from Tomo Bystet, let alone um, from different punters. So, John, I'd like to know who your Golf Barons Cup team would be, whether they are... Champions Tour, PGA Tour, LPGA or otherwise. So give me in order your Wooder, your Ironer, your Shorter and your Putter to fill each of these specialist roles, but those roles only. Well, it it would be disloyal of me not to support my team, but my decisions are not only based on loyalty because I actually think – and I've watched these guys hit a lot of balls in the last four years. Believe it or not, I think this team would be far more competitive than what most people would give credit to. So uh, I'm going with four of our staff players to make up my team. And the first player I'm going to nominate for driver is Scott McCarran. So McCarran is number one in driving distance on the PGA Tour champions, averaging about 318 yards this year. So that's pretty competitive. Pretty competitive out there yep. and pleased to report that uh, we've been Scott uh, for this is our fourth season now and he's never played our driver before this year. So his contract allows him to play whatever he wants to do. There's no He doesn't have to play our clubs if he doesn't want to. It's purely by choice. Uh, and we've had trouble. Scott's an unusual ball flight mixture. But anyway, we, we got our driver just right for him this year. 
And so he's leading Champions Tour on off the tee this year, which is pretty cool. So he's going to be my driver. And he, uh, by and large, he'd be competitive with most of the guys out there on the main tour. You know, he'd be 20 yards behind the the really, really long guys, but he'll be longer than the average out there on the main tour. So I think that's going to give us a competitive start off the tee. Okay. Your water is Scott McCarran. I could not go past the guru, the, the doyen. Um, Mr. Langer had to find a slot, and I think this might be the third time I've quoted Clayton. Uh, I'm not sure how that works. At least. But Mike is uh, on the record several times saying the two best iron players uh, he saw in his career were a Mr. Ballesteros and a Mr. Langer. And even today, while they don't go as far as they used to, uh, his ability to just strategically locate the ball on the green and in the right spot and very, very rarely in the wrong spot uh, makes it an absolute no-brainer for for uh, Bernhard to be my ironer. Beautiful. Thanks for um, getting the terminology right. My escaper is a perfect fit because at the age of eight, Alex Checker was left by his father in Yugoslavia in a uh, camp because his father couldn't get him out to Germany. His father went out on his own and moved to Germany and lived for 18 months while uh, uh, Alex was in a camp and then came back and got him. He moved to Germany at age nine and then ended up building a career in professional golf. So... When it comes to escaping, I'm not sure there's a better story in professional golf than that one. And Alex also happens to be a genius around the greens. So uh, a nice twist there. And and by the way, to hear Alex talk about his story of of how he came to golf uh, short. So he was nine when he escaped uh, Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia, my bad, Yugoslavia. Uh, and started playing golf at age 10 when his father got him out to Germany is just, you you almost can't not tear up listening to this story. Like, it's unbelievable. So anyway, my escaper is Alex Checker. And the number one putter on PGA Tour Champions is uh, a guy by the name of Pin- Tim Petrovic who rolls it like you just can't believe except on Sundays, but let's just, <laughs> I, might have to bring a, I might have to bring a sub in on Sundays, but uh, Thursday to Saturday, he's the best out there and, again, competitive with anybody out on the main tour. So, look, I think my little team of golden oldies would be pretty darn competitive, uh, if not incredibly entertaining anyway, and uh, would bring a bit of fun to the uh, Golf Barons Team Cup. Uh, and it's one of the great things about the Golf Barons Cup, John, is it's a 48-player field and we're only playing 54 holes. Uh, so there will be no Sunday golf. Um, hey, so- and and my, my guys will be ready because I tell you, there is a huge um, – sorry to digress. No, but if you talk to the Champions Tour guys, it takes them a year to get used to playing 70 – from going from 72 to uh, 54 holes. It's a huge – it doesn't seem like such a change, but it really is a dramatically different event in the terms of the need to sprint and get out fast. I mean, you just can't have a flat round. you got to shoot 14, 12 to 16 under typically is winning each week. So you just can't have a par round. You know, you've got to get out of the gates fast. So 
Yeah, the 54-holer also creates a speed and energy that you don't really think about unless you're in that competitive environment that you've just got to get out and go hard and fast right out of the game. And I saw that stat, John, that there's only three players so far who've had their scores count in every round, which might actually be testament to that adjustment back to, to getting out of the gates. There's only been three players on live that have actually had their score need to count or counted in each of the three rounds of the two events so far. So it'll be interesting to see if that trend develops or as they settle in, as you say, to sprinting straight out of the blocks, whether the cream rises to the top or whether we start to see some of these other kids make a bit of an impact as opposed to um, to sort of fluffing around because they need to now secure their spots going All forward. All the guys tell me that, that one of the first things you have to learn is you can't play yourself into a 54-hole event. It's like get ready and go. And you got to go low round one, two, and three. There, there just isn't space for a, a flat spot. It's just kind of interesting that I had never thought about before. That's for sure. And I think the live guys will, but they'll start to demonstrate that. I think it'll be interesting. Okay. Well, on that, uh, on the fifty-four hole insight, John, we're going to bring this uh, tenuous links podcast to a close. Thanks to everybody for listening. Um, or watching, remember to sign up at golfparents.com for all your updates on the show, which is not far away. Season three and season four is ready to start the production, which is very exciting for us. Uh, podcast updates, magazine updates, and everything else. And until next time, Barons, add some swaggerdier swing. Swaggerdier swing.